Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Knock that fire down, 19. Copy, Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19. All new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Now, the Chorus Radio Network presents The Roy Green Show with Roy Green, keeping you informed and entertained. Now, here's Roy. Super Bowl Sunday. Mark Yost. Going to join us later on, the uh, business of sports, writer, reporter, columnist, for the Wall Street Journal, he's written a lot of books on the business of sport. He'll give us some information about the Super Bowl you may not get anywhere else but here today. Carolina? Yeah, I think so. If I were betting two bucks, Carolina. There is a great deal uh, coming up last night. The G- How many of you watched the GOP debate? The uh, governors and uh, senators and the the newbies. Going at it, New Hampshire. Marco Rubio didn't have a particularly good night. Clearly, everybody's still afraid of Donald Trump. Ted Cruz had the opportunity to go toe-to-toe with him, and Cruz backed down. So we're going to be speaking with uh, Fran Coombs, the managing editor of um, Rasmussen Reports in the next hour, about the uh, debate and about the polling and about what's going to happen, more than likely. On Tuesday, when they vote in uh, New Hampshire in the primary, and we'll take some calls from you on that as well. There's a lot coming up on today's show. We're going to begin with Chris Murphy. He's a Toronto criminal lawyer who, in 2014, as we were all becoming aware of the John Gameshi alleged behavior, wrote a column for the Toronto Star in which Mr. Murphy stated that over the years, women he knew had been sexually assaulted, or at least they said they had been. Some went to him for advice about reporting the assaults to police. When the assault was committed by a man known to the women, and because there was no forensic evidence, Chris Murphy would advise the women not to report the rape because it would be a he-said-she-said situation, and the men would most likely be acquitted. Mr. Murphy wrote an excellent column in the uh, the Star. He has two young daughters. They were two and four at the time. And he had sleepless nights wondering what advice he would give his daughters years from now if they were raped and came to Dad for advice on what to do. Chris Murphy changed his mind, decided he would never again give the advice he'd been giving. Many other lawyers do, too. They say to women who say we were sexually assaulted by a man we knew. They say, listen, if you go to court, it could develop into a, or likely will develop into a he said, she said. And the most likely outcome is an acquittal for the man. So think about it. How has the Gian Gameshi case affected Mr. Murphy's thinking about this particular um, the issue of um, appearing in court and facing charges when uh, all nations looking at this one. Chris, thank you very much for uh, for coming back on the program. And uh, this is a case that has everybody talking. Everyone has opinions about what's going on in the courtroom. Everybody has opinions about who's saying what and how the lawyers are behaving. Overall, before we get into specifics and details, overall, what is it, what impression is this case making on you? 
Uh, thanks for having me, Roy. Well, uh, I've attended a great deal of this trial in Toronto, and the overall impression I have is that right now the Crown's case is very tenuous. But at the same time, uh, in, in watching the two complainants testify and listening to what their lawyers have said after their testimony, it appears to me as though each of them is glad that she came forward. And I think that's an important message to kind of convey in, 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 the, in the course of this trial. Because that brings us back to the decision that you made after you thought about your daughters and you were asked specifically what advice you would give to a woman who said she'd been sexually assaulted by someone she knew. And right. you, you reversed your field completely, and I have tremendous respect for you for the decision that you've made. This, this case, is this case a case in point? It, uh, it is. It's exactly the case in point because this is a he said, she said. It's actually uh, they said, he said, if, if Mr. Gobeshi ends up testifying, which he may not have to do now. And the, the issue in this case, of course, is the fact that 12 and 13 years went by before the two complainants came forward and gave their first account to the police. And that really is a problem in this case. And it, not that it should be necessarily, but what happened in this case, it appears as though the two complainants did not provide the Crown Attorney with a number of emails that had been sent to Mr. Gomeshi after the alleged assaults. And uh, the, the complainants just kind of got bushwhacked by the existence of these emails and cross-examination. Yeah. Well, the first complainant didn't report to police that she was allegedly violently assaulted, if, if I have this correctly, uh, and the hair pulling and being punched repeatedly to the side of the head. Was that also not reported to the police initially? Well, it, was, it was reported initially uh, in 2014, so it was 12 years afterwards. 12 years after. Yes. And and in one in one instance, in the there are two allegations for the first complainant. The first was a hair pulling incident in Mr. Gomeshi's car, allegedly. And the problem with that was is that three days before she gave her statement to the police, she went on the national and indicated that they were not being intimate at the time of the hair pulling. Mm -hmm. So and then it, and then at trial and to the police, she said that they were involved in a sensuous kiss at the time of the hair pulling. So it were two inconsistent statements given within three days of each other. And because of the charge of sexual assault, you have to be involved in some kind of sexual act if you can be convicted of it. And if they weren't kissing at the time, then it's just an assault. And not, not to downplay it at all, but it, you know, it's, it goes right to the heart of the actual charge itself. Right, right. Uh, you, wrote, you wrote a subsequent column. You've been covering the case for the Toronto Sun and for E, right? Yes. Uh, you wrote a subsequent column in the Sun, which I read, and you wrote the... Marie Hannon, the um, defense lawyer, the cross-examination firm but always fair, and the complainant's testimony would contradict her earlier statements to police. So when, and you just explained that to us, how does this affect the case overall? I, I understand that you said the judge has to maybe make a distinction between sexual assault and common assault. Yes. But but how does how does contradictory state? I mean, how does it? How do these statements affect the case overall? Well, the the real problem in this case, and I think this is what some uh, groups are misunderstanding, because there is nothing wrong with reporting a sexual assault twelve years later. Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with having repeated communication with the person who assaulted you in that twelve year period. 
just because you've talked to Mr. Gomeshi for a number of, on a number of occasions and emailed him in, in the interim doesn't mean that the sexual assault did not occur. Mm-hmm. The problem in this case, though, is that each complainant essentially gave one version of the events under oath in examination in chief. So if we, if we start with the first complainant, she essentially said that she had no contact with Mr. Gomeshi in the period after the assaults. And then in cross-examination, Ms. Hennon puts to her these emails that she had sent to Mr. Gomeshi, one of which included a photograph of herself in a bikini. So if she would have, if she would have told the court that after the assaults, she, commu- she continued to communicate with him for whatever her reasons were, then that'd be far less of a problem than advising the judge under oath that you did not have any communication and then you're faced with these these emails you sent, which you know clearly establishes that you've just been untruthful to, to to the judge. And in a case where there's no corroborating evidence, and all the judge has to go on to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Gomeshi committed these offenses, there's no corroborating evidence, so he has to rely on the complainant's testimony. And if she's appeared to be untruthful, that he just can't find, in my opinion, beyond a reasonable doubt that the assaults took place at all. So it gets very tricky for... Uh, is this tricky now for both complainants? Because there was also... Uh, Lucy de Couture had um, there were some emails as well. Right. It was exactly the same thing with Ms. de Couture because uh, she testified and she, she kind of went to great lengths to explain that she was not at all romantically in, interested in Mr. Gomeshi after the alleged assault. Right. She said she just wanted to be friends with him. Okay, fair enough. If that were established on the record, then then the judge is basing that can base his decision on her testimony. The problem again, though, is that the day after the alleged assault, Ms. Decuter sent Mr. Gomeshi an email where she says that she wants Mr. Gomeshi to f his brains out tonight. So, you know, we've all had friends in our lives and. Typically speaking, that's not the way you communicate with the person you're not romantically interested in. No. And then two, and then three days after that, she sends a handwritten love letter almost to Mr. Gomeshi, wherein she signs off on the letter saying, I love your hands. And these are the same two hands that she's alleged three days earlier uh, choked her to the, to the point where she couldn't breathe. So it's, it just leaves the judge and the Crown, frankly, in a really difficult situation because it just seemed to come as a surprise to everybody, including Ms. Decouter, who had not remembered sending that email and had not remembered, according to her testimony, writing that letter. Yeah. Chris, can you hold on a couple of minutes? Of course. Okay, we're going to come back with Chris Murphy, a criminal lawyer in Toronto. He's uh, covering the Gomeshi trial for the Toronto Sun and for E, and uh, I'll talk some more about this. Um you see, the information that Mr. Murphy is sharing with us, and we talked about this yesterday as well, when this comes forward during the trial, and it's a surprise to the Crown, and um, and it can damage the case of the, uh, of the complainant, what would make you forget for 12 years that that particular evidence was out there? Or a lot of questions. More with Chris Murphy when we come back on The Roy Green Show. Stay with us. Now, the Chorus Radio Network presents The Roy Green Show with Roy Green, keeping you informed and entertained. Now, here's Roy.
You can send your emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com and uh, follow me on Twitter at The Roy Green Show. Listen back to this interview with uh, Chris Murphy, Toronto criminal lawyer, or anything else that we air at RoyGreenShow.com on the web, in the podcasts. Chris, the, I was just talking to um, a studio producer. I've talked to people overnight about this particular case and the issues you and I have been discussing and that you've been explaining to me. And and everybody gets hung up on the same points that that, sh- that you've just raised before the break, and that is, out of seemingly nowhere, came uh, emails, photographs, correspondence between the complainants and uh, and John Gameshi that he obviously kept in his records. Is it uh, the question that I was asked last night was? There's a woman who was asking me this question. Is it possible, is it acceptable to a court, I guess it's possible, but is it acceptable to a court that under the stressful situation that you're under at the time that you're, that you, um, you know, you're, you're testifying that you were assaulted and you were sexually assaulted, that you forgot, simply forgot, that you maintained or tried to maintain some sort of relationship or as I think Mr. Kutcher said sort of trying to normalize what wasn't a normal situation is it possible that 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 could happen and then secondly is it acceptable to the court that simply I forgot that I really just forgot that this communication was taking place after the alleged assault right so yes for sure it is acceptable to say that you forgot it's 12 13 14 years ago now so right the judge does not expect perfection from any witness in any criminal proceeding, especially in a, in a historic sexual assault case. Mm-hmm. That, that's not really the issue uh, that that people should be focusing on, in my opinion, because it, it's it's more the fact that during the testimony, the, the, the complainants did not suggest that there was a, really any possibility that this other alternate scenario had played out. So with Ms. Decouter, she was very firm in her testimony that they were just friends, that she had zero romantic interest in Mr. Gomeshi. So, again, if, if you say that under oath on Thursday morning and then on Friday morning in court, you're presented with these emails and, and love letter that clearly demonstrates that at least you know, the, the text of it would clearly indicate that there was some sort of romantic interest that Ms. Decouter had, then the judge is left in a situation, well, what can he believe? There, and there are two issues. One is reliability of the witness's testimony, which means is, she, what is, what is, is what she's saying actually correct? The other is credibility. Is what she's saying truthful? And either way, uh, the, the inconsistencies in the testimony affect the judge's ability to rely on her evidence because if she actually sits here today believing that she was just wanted to be friends with Mr. Gomeshi but the evidence demonstrates something clearly different then it's unreliable if the judge concludes that she's doing it on purpose that she's intentionally misleading the court then it's not credible either way when there's no corroborating evidence how is a judge supposed to find beyond a reasonable doubt that Mr. Gomeshi committed these offenses? I just mm-hmm. think it's very, very difficult for him to do so. I suppose the, the, the next question is, were the Crown aware of the evidence that was in, or the, uh, the evidence that was introduced by Ms. Hannon over the last couple of days, the emails and, and the photographs? Were the, uh, the Crown aware of that 
prior to charges being laid. Do you think the Crown would have proceeded with charges? Uh, well, they would have asked, the Crowns would have asked the complainants, of, you know, not for an explanation, but just to explain what these emails and, and letter meant. Right. And again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with a, with a woman who is, the, who is the victim of a sexual assault continuing to communicate with the abuser. It happens all the time. And I just, I just hope that women who are out there don't take this case to mean that just because you continue to speak to the abuser afterwards means that you can't come to court and be believed. Because that's just not what this case is going to stand for, in my opinion. You just have to, when you come to court, tell the judge like it is. You have to be honest in every single respect of your testimony if you don't have any evidence to corroborate what your um, allegations are. And so I really hope that women who are the victims of sexual assault don't feel as though they can't come to court because if you come to court and you tell the truth and no matter what the truth is you can be you can rest assured that the judge will consider your testimony very carefully it still may not end in a conviction because if the if the accused person gets up there and gives a different version there may be a reasonable doubt but you should still in my opinion this goes back to my letter from last year I think it's in 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 the in the great in the grand scheme of things, it's much more more um, beneficial for a person to come to court and and tell their story. Yeah, Chris, I thank you. I thank you so much for uh, for joining us today. And uh, I, I reread your column from 2014. It's this is a really excellent piece, and I, I would recommend everybody go back and find it and read it. And uh, we'll talk again. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me, Roy. Chris Murphy, uh, criminal lawyer in Toronto. Now, my phone uh, number is 888-225-8255, 888-225-8255. If you're in the Toronto area, 416-870-6400, 416-870-6400. And I'm going to ask a question that is going to be difficult, maybe difficult for to answer. But based on, on the Gameshi case and what we've heard and what Chris Murphy just explained to us and what we heard yesterday from Jeff Madison and... Um, um, from Dahlia Israel. Have you, has anybody listening to this show now been a victim of a sexual assault, sexual abuse, unwanted sexual attention, sexual harassment, and decided not to speak to the police or to a lawyer because you were afraid to, because you were worried about what would happen if you did, because you didn't trust the justice system or the legal system? One triple eight. 225-8255-416-870-6400 is my number. Have you been a victim of unwanted sexual attention and you have not done anything about it officially? You haven't gone to the justice system because you didn't trust the system to properly represent you. 888-225-8255-416-870-6400. We'll come back. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, all along the Chorus Radio Network. One of the more difficult questions I can ask you, and um, I just want to hear your stories. Uh, if, If you found yourself a victim of, or the attention of, unwanted sexual attention, focus, and you did nothing, I don't mean to suggest that you should have just 
gone and done something that you decided not to do. But if you decided that you didn't trust the system, that you didn't trust the justice system, that you didn't feel like you could go and speak out and go to the police, why did you make that decision? What is it about the system that you don't trust? It's got to be a monstrously difficult decision for for any woman to, and or man, to undertake. Triple eight two two five eight two five five four one six eight seven zero sixty four hundred, and um, if let me leave it at that. I, I was going to say that. Well, why not? What impression has this trial made on you? What aspect of the John Gameshi trial? And we cannot presume guilt or innocence. We won't go there. We cannot, by law, go there. But what impression has the trial made on you? And what specifically has really made an impression on you? For me, it was the emails. But the voice in the back of my head says, 12 years later, 14 years later, 10 years later, depending on the person, depending on the case, you may not remember that you wrote that stuff. Whether it's whether it's these particular emails or another case, you may not know, you may not recall that you had communication. You may not. What impression has the trial made on you? And if you have been uh, subjected to unwanted sexual attention, and you, I hate saying you didn't do anything about it, but I don't know any other way to phrase it. If you chose to if you made the decision to absorb what happened to you without telling anyone, without lodging a complaint, maybe it was something at work. You decided to just absorb it and not tell anyone. Why'd you make that decision? Because if you don't trust the system and you don't trust that you're going to be treated fairly, there's something inherently wrong. We heard some statistics yesterday some numbers yesterday, about the percentages of women in this country who find themselves subjected to unwanted sexual attention. The numbers are huge. Frank in Toronto. Hey, Frank. Hey, how are you? Good, sir. How are you doing? Good. Um, my, my thing is this. Based on these two women, if I was on the jury, chances are I would probably find this guy innocent. For the no, I can't, I, look, I can't let you... You, you mentioned the case. You can't talk about the case. And you can't talk about innocence or guilt. Okay, we can't well, do no, that. I'm in my opinion, like if you, even if you, when you're let's be hypothetical. Innocent. Let's be hypothetical. Okay, so it's a hypothetical case. Okay. That's right. If someone says that hypothetically, they forgot about what happened, but in the letters they write, they're mentioning of what happened: the choking, the hands on the throat. You got to kind of question the person. Do they really remember? Are they saying they don't remember? Or maybe, you know what, they forgot to even, or they remember writing the emails, but maybe they, they didn't realize that this guy actually kept them 14 years, because who keeps letters for 14 years or emails? I delete mine right away if I don't need them. Yeah. It's just, I think that a process... Do you believe that it's possible? Do you believe it's possible for somebody to forget, literally forget, having had communication with someone who was involved in a really emotional and difficult, uh, challenging time in their lives, you know, where there's a tremendous amount of emotion, fear, anger, frustration, uh, all of the emotions. Is it possible to forget that I, I had, you know, that, that I had this communication with this person afterwards, that I had this immediate communication, and you don't remember that you did that? I, I, I'm, like I said, I'm no doctor, I'm not, but I believe that if you don't see the person, and you don't, you probably would forget about everything. But it seems like there was communication over the years, 
So it's kind of hard to forget. I still remember the kid who pushed me in the playground when I was two years old, and I'm 44 years old today. Yeah. So it's just kind of hard. To, Frank, do you under yeah. do you do you understand people? Because it can happen to men as well. That's right. Do you, do you understand people who say, "I'm not going to report this. I'm not going to go to the police. I'm not going to go and and uh, and 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 charge. Try to have anybody charged." Because I don't trust the system. And let me just finish, because when, 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 when I initially spoke with Chris Murphy in 2014, the lawyer who was just on the air with us, he'd written a column in which he wrote that his what he'd done for years, doesn't do it anymore, but and what a lot many lawyers do, if there's a, a, um, a sexual assault that is reported by a woman to a lawyer, not to police, to a lawyer, a woman goes to the lawyer and says, I was sexually assaulted, and the lawyer says, was it by somebody you know? And the woman says, yeah, it was someone as a friend or, you know, it was somebody I knew. Lawyers will often say, from what I understand, don't go to the police, don't lay a charge, uh, try have a charge try to be laid. Because if you do, it'll turn into a he said, she said in court, and it'll turn out to be an acquittal for the man. So better just not say anything. I believe that. I believe that a lot of women won't report it, number one, out of fear of embarrassment. And number two, I think... You know, a lot of women. I know a woman who was who was raped, and she says she never reported. She she felt that the people would blame her for being put in a situation. Well, like isn't that. that just a that's a free pass to the scumbags of the world? It's true. You know what? It's it's true. But I think this case is going to make it worse for women. I don't know. I think that. I, I think wonder. That, you know, I think a lot of people are blaming the wrong person in this case. I don't know. Well, we we're not going to go there, Frank. Thank you very much for the call. It's very interesting when we talk about issues like this. Quite often it's men who call, not women. Um, Paul is in Tiny Township. How tiny is it, Paul? Um, It's rather large, but it just has a little name. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you for the call. Go ahead, please. um, Thank you for having me on. Um, We've been trying to come forward for two and a half years against... uh, a criminal conspiracy that was formed by a bunch of doctors. My son was treated against his will. He had no idea that it was an insurance accessory. He waited two years to see a neurologist for a head injury from a car accident. And the man did an illegal spinal tap to him, filled his spine up with drugs, and basically hurt his private parts in ways. And we've tried to come forward to the police three times, and all three times they've uh, basically corralled us into a room and yelled at us right to our face that we were going to jail for for trying to why would they do that um i have no idea and this is are you talking about your are you talking about your son yes i am and your son was treated by a a medical specialist a neurologist in a ghetto apartment i told him not to go because it didn't look it didn't sound right paul i i have no paul i i have no idea what to but what i would say to you is this uh, if you're not getting, if you're not getting, if you're not getting proper support from the police officers you're dealing with, yes. then I would suggest that you go over their heads and you go and see their superiors. I really can't help you with that, but I thank you for the call. I, I, I don't know what to, um, I don't know what to suggest. Other than talk to the superiors, Mark. Where are you, Mark? Hi, calling from Toronto. How yes, are sir. You? Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Um, unfortunately, in in a, a criminal case. The evidence has to be uh, very convincing and strong because on both sides, a person that's been abused, um, it's difficult for them. And the person that's falsely accused, it's difficult for them as well. 
So I think what needs to be done is when somebody goes out or they're dating, you need to follow some sort of a protocol. Somebody should know who you're going out with. Uh, you should go to a, in a public area if you meet them for a first time. Like there should be, uh, you have to follow some sort of a system to ensure your safety and then a follow-up of communication and you have to keep it. You know, one of the things I heard yesterday in one of the interviews we did, <clears throat> excuse me, was uh, so often it happens that a woman's first statement will be that she was sexually assaulted by a friend or a family member, someone she knew, someone she trusted. If you have a relationship with someone you know and whom you trust, you're not going to take those precautions necessarily that you're suggesting that you would take, I think, initially when you're first going out with someone. Are you, are you in the legal profession? Uh, I'm not, but I, I've been involved in, in a situation. A dear friend of mine uh, was acquitted. He was in purgatory for four years, and he was found innocent after four years. And, and the evidence was quite clear, you know. And, uh, and it was funny. Nobody would let go, not even the Crown, uh, to the point where the judge says, I don't know why this gentleman was charged. So what happens to, what, what happens to a person... When they're charged, they're taken to court, clearly. I'm guessing your friend was taken to court. Oh, yeah. He so he goes on. He went goes, through with the whole trial. He wouldn't make a deal with the Crown. So okay. his name is out there. Uh, pe- is people know he's charged. He's charged yeah. with, a, with, a, with a sexual offense. Yeah. And now he's viewed through a different prism by society. That's P-R-I-S-M, by yeah. society. Yeah. But when he's found not guilty, do people automatically... Um, take a different approach to them, saying, gee, we're sorry this happened to you and, and society has to make it up to you? Or do people look at him with a degree of suspicion still? Sexual crime. It was, it was a different type of crime that he was charged for, but it, it doesn't matter. He's always going to be known as the person that might have done whatever. So, and, we, and I'm not mentioning his name because this is an ongoing... Well, I'm glad you're not. Yeah, I'm not mentioning his name because this is an ongoing investigation because Evidence was fabricated. People are people are being investigated. But he's still he's still viewed with suspicion after the judge says, "I don't know why this even came to court." Yeah, all the time. Because that's human. That's human nature now, right? Somebody's charged now. What happens is immediately on social media, yeah. there's a stampede toward finding somebody guilty or determining that they're not guilty. Exactly. Right, and then and then afterward, one side is going to be disappointed. And so they'll say, well, it was a crappy trial or right. crappy system, and it didn't serve the purpose. And so the person who was charged and is innocent right. was wrongfully charged, still carries that burden around probably for the rest of their lives. For the rest of their lives. And what's, uh, and what's unfortunate, and we like to blame the system, and it's difficult to blame the system as well yeah. because we don't have a crystal ball. Right. Mark, I've got to run. I've got to run, sir. I thank you very much for the call. It's the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. When we come back, we're going to talk to Joe McFarland at our Chorus Radio station in Calgary, Newstalk 770. Tragic situation in, uh, in Calgary at the Olympic Park on the bobsled run. Um, two 17-year-olds, twins, were killed when their sled, and I guess and Mark, uh, Joe will tell us, um, I guess kids go out and they, because it's there, they'll try to use it. And their sled crashed into a huge gate, and uh, two young men lost their lives, and six others were were injured. We'll talk to Joe McFarland when we come back. We'll also talk to Joe a little bit quickly about uh, what's going on in the province of Ontario economically and what the province needs. Stay with us.